0: At approximately 5.15 p.m. on May 10th in 1967, three boys ages 11, 13, and 14 explore a cave near their house in Mark Twain's hometown of Hannibal, Missouri.
1: Brothers Billy Hogue, Joel Hogue, and friend Craig Dow are never seen again.
0: Making the case go cold for over 50
1: years. Using the facts from nineteen sixty seven, we reopen the case for the lost Boys of Hannibal.
2: Which way you going, Billy can I go to Which way you going, Billy can I
0: Welcome back to the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast. I'm your host, Frankie Camboletta. And with me as always... Chris Ketters. Chris, that episode seven was something spectacular. It really, man, does it feed into so many different ideas. uh, Things that really have been, I guess, on a lot of people's minds in our group. It kind of answers some questions uh, from my perspective, having no expertise and pretty ignorant to caving in general, uh, so i I think that that is just something that people are going to come away with with just an explosion of new ideas and new theories.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I'm the same with you, and and you've heard Julie in the last episode. She's she's so good at at communicating those messages, and and, and you can tell she's definitely a teacher because um i am able to easily like comprehend what she's saying and and it's great to have that that information at hand and not only that as i mentioned at the beginning last episode she's she's a caver she's a geologist she she grew up around the Hannibal area so all these things that are going into place are really helping us really cue in on what we need to be searching for and what our next steps are to to find these three boys
0: yeah i mean i think our podcast has always been centered around the idea of fact over fiction i think that we always want our researchers and the experts that we bring on the show uh, to add something to the conversation and i think that we've been really good at that i mean from christian lyon to dr brian Haloida and now with julie angel i think you have a very well-rounded crew um, of individuals that have come on here to project uh, informed opinions about their areas of expertise something that me or you couldn't do in a couple months with everything else we got going on
1: no i mean it's great well and, and julie's been been studying this for 25 plus years so she's her background in, in geology is is definitely something and same with dr Heloida. i mean he's been studying the the area i mean that's their profession that's it's great to literally bring in the word profession into these things because I don't have a profession again, behind anything I do. So I, I'm an amateur hobbyist in a lot of stuff, but not a professional in anything else. But uh, what is that, jack of tra- uh, a jack of many trades, a master or none, or something like yeah. that that's saying? Um, but so, yeah, having them come on is great. And um, one of the things I do want to bring up real quick is that Last episode, we asked for a a few things, and I'm sure we're going to be doing the same in this episode, too. So um, if there's something that uh, you know knowledge of, I think last time we talked about the sinkhole um, and dug into that a little bit. So if if you have some information for us, maybe you you don't want to be part of the discussion group. You don't like Facebook. I, I know there's plenty out there that don't. Um, you can always go to our website. We have an email you can send to us. Uh, I believe we have a phone number. You can also call us at and leave a message. So so do those things to contact us because, again, without the help, what, what do you always say without the help of the public? Uh, cold
0: can't cases, solve it.
1: You can't solve a cold case.
0: Yeah. You, public solves crime. Public solves mysteries. I mean, that's kind of where the Lost Boys of Hannibal is headed in the percentage range. I think after today's episode – Uh, it's, It's chilling. It really opens up a few more, I wouldn't say rabbit holes, but more doors into understanding what just occurred on that Wednesday, on that May 10th, 1967. I think that, you know, with her expertise mixed with her passion that comes through with her knowledge, I mean, it's it's something that i miss being in class i miss being in school i mean i i was a professional student for a long time and just collected degrees for a minute um but i i love the idea that we can still learn so much and and that even in, even as a jack of all trades master of none but i think that in that there's there's skill sets right that we still want to learn that we still want to be a part of so i, I don't know i think that you know people feel that they go into you know, business, and they have to be this person the rest of their life. You can—I've done so many different things in creative, and, and it's—it's it's just fun and it's rewarding. Yep. And the Communicator Award is just another example of that. But that really is dedicated to the people that we've been communicating with. I don't think that we're this far along and we're not award winning without the people that actually came on our show or helped us sidebar on our Slack channels, our research team, the people that are just basically feeding us correct and fact, fact, now factful knowledge of where we stand. Right. And all of that could can change when we have new facts. Right. We've never led an episode. and I And I bring this up because. You know, our discussion groups are for those interactions with our audience. Those discussion groups help us gain more understanding of the events that occurred in Hannibal on May 10, 1967. But it's also just for people's theories, things that we haven't thought of. I, I love lo- new listeners, too. You always know new listener posts. It's always like, have you thought about this? And I'm like, go back one month. I think there's a huge debate on that. You know, it's like, but it's, yeah. it's fun to see that great minds think alike. And yeah. in the in the chance that, you know, we have a chance to get together, I don't like Chris, and and, and I'm going to bring it up just because like I want people to be aware of our our rules in our groups. Um, it's it's not about personal feelings toward anyone. We respect the Dow and the Hogue family. We respect the community of Hannibal. We respect the police department of Hannibal. Um, we don't have these jettison trends on our podcast that want us to point fingers. We're just trying to find the facts. We're just trying to find the answers, and it comes with it comes with you know sometimes it comes with uh, the the opportunity that we need to you know just calm people down in their passion. We don't like deleting people or aborting people or you know having people leave the group. There's never a reason for that when there's reason and logic, when you can have a conversation about it. And it's something that's so important today, more than any day, is having a conversation about things you don't understand or things you might have an opinion on that you could be wrong on. I don't know how many times that we have redacted stuff and retracted things we've said from mispronunciations to wrong locations, but we will continue to do that. Based on the audience that listens to us, that is the goal of this show is to find the boys. It's, it, the goal of the show is not to, to become millionaires and to make money. It's always been about finding them and reopening this case and keeping it fresh in the minds of those that listen and the ones that will listen in the future.
1: Well, and it reminds me, Frankie, that you know um, that if we can't solve this case, hopefully we do. I mean, that's the ultimate goal for us. But in talking about being factual and making sure we have the correct information, if it's 100 years down the road and somebody's this podcast is still going to be available, unless there's an EMP attack on the country, um, this podcast (laughs) is still going to be out there in 100 years. And so maybe somebody down the road can add some of that extra information or maybe there's new technology available down the road. Maybe we won't have access to that yet. So they can come back to our podcast and listen and say, hey, this is, you know, get the background, get the facts, get the information. So that's why we want to make sure that what we put out there is factual. And if we do get it wrong, we, we make sure to pass it along. I do want to add also to something you just did say um, we about, the, about our new listeners going to the discussion group. And I, always, I find it so funny. It just happened a few weeks ago that uh, a person... Posted something, asked some question. I don't even remember what it was, and uh, we have a new moderator, and we have mentioned her name before, Angela Remington. She's a new moderator on the discussion forum, but uh, she she responded back like, "Just keep listening," <laughs> because she was only like halfway through season one, yeah. um, and so yeah, that's one thing. Obviously, you're listening to the podcast right now, you, you're 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 getting caught up, but it's it is funny that uh, you do see those people that get so excited. Uh, because they have a thought or, or they are questioning something or like, why aren't you going this direction? And so we're trying to answer all those questions. And if we haven't answered that question yet, um, trust me, I got a whiteboard right here to my left that has a full list on it of stuff that we have to cover yet. So we're, again, the stuff talking about the caves and, and exploring geology in, in the Hannibal area uh, is amazing, but it's, it's really just a stepping stone into to much further stuff down the road.
0: Yeah. And we're, we've grown um, our, our, are our, our, our basically our group to over 330 people. We have a good following, over 800 people on our Facebook like page. And we like to see those numbers grow with time. And um, we do have a patreon. People always sometimes message us and stuff, hey, can we donate? Where does the money go? Well, we do have a patreon. Uh, you can find us at Lost Boys of Hannibal. On patreon.com, and we don't have really high demands. You can donate a dollar, you can donate five bucks. All that money will go to this stuff that me and Chris have been talking about. Um, Paying these guys that are going to come out and do, hopefully, with the police involvement, because we need the police to be involved in order to do any of those things, um, ground penetrating radar. Um, Also, 20% of those funds are going to go to missing kids. And, like I talked about last episode, I'm really, really serious about starting a 5K for the Lost Boys of Hannibal (laughs) and raising awareness for missing kids all around Missouri. And let's focus on our state. Um, And it's important because as I think we've talked about in other episodes that we remember um, that there are family members that are related to these boys that are still alive. And we are now going to start to reach out in the next couple of weeks to family members to see if they want to be on the show. And one of the reasons why we held back for so long is because they don't need to know this story. They lived it. And it's very different. I've been through some very traumatic experiences in my life, like Hurricane Andrew. Um, Hurricane Katrina, uh, Wilma I've been through some major storms Living where I did as a kid For 34 years I faced a lot of hurricanes And in that there's a lot of tragedy And so I understand what it is To live through tragedies and devastation And losing, your, losing everything you own um, I've seen it I've lived with it I understand it I don't need to be told about it At this point it's not so much We're telling them what happened It's their take Where are they at now? 53 years later where where are they at with everything um are we doing a good job is another question i mean are we are we doing justice um for them and for the integrity of the three boys because remember too it's their life too you know that we have to think about and remembering them keeps us keeps it fresh in their mind you never know who listens to your podcast and who just might be in missouri one day and stumble across something and be like hey you never know. I mean, that's how it happens. If you are fresh in your head about things that happen in an area, and you just happen to stumble about something, you could you could possibly uncover something—a riddle, a puzzle. Because it's always that one tiny bit of information that nobody thinks it's important, but it so is. I still want to know what happened to that rabbit that Joey trapped that day. That's so important to me. Where is the rabbit at? Where did he get the rabbit? Like when? What part of the day was that at? Like, we don't talk about those things, Chris. Today, we're going to dive deeper, into to make this the biggest pun episode ever, um, <laughs> into what is happening exactly. We're going to discuss a lot of different things. We're going to be discussing cave rescue today versus then, and the time needed to accurately record finding somebody in a cave. We're going to talk about Jerry Vineyard, who did extensive research in the road cut, wasn't able to map anything and ran out of time. What a lot of people have been thinking about since I think we mentioned it on the episode, and if you read John Wingate's book, which is Lost Boys of Hannibal, um, and that is the smell. The smell is something that has kept me up at night thinking about why haven't, the, the right questions for us weren't answered. And maybe, maybe our guest, Julie Angel can answer that. We're back with guest uh, Julie Angel to discuss more on the Caves of Hannibal. We kind of took a detour there, Chris, for a little bit on our episodes. But I think the last episode really, for me, was glaring evidence that our search is probably still in the same area that the boys went lost. I can say that with high probability that the boys might still be in that area. Now, that's my opinion, not yours. Um... So I'll, I'll let that I'll let that sit. At your state. I mean, where's Jack at? We're waiting for our, our fourth. Where is the cat? Yeah, at?
1: He, I have I have him being entertained by the misses right now. That's so that's why okay. I said entertain that's him for awesome. another hour while we record. So she's like, okay.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I just want you guys to know too. I entered over a hundred film festivals this year, and the only film festival I really cared about was the Black Noir Cat. It's, it's, it, I just want the black cat. That's it. I don't even know how big the festival is. I just want the cat statue. <laughs> that would be a but, cool um, statue. It's my, my obsession with cats.
1: So, um, so when we, so we're, we're still, we're still here with Julie. And Julie, thanks for coming back and, and continuing our discussion. And I was telling Frankie before we started, uh, recording this section that, uh, I, I'm. We were geeking out. I mean, I, I I was so in depth and enjoying our discussion. I actually told Frankie, "I was like, man, I might have to see about taking one of her classes because I was enjoying the heck out of this." <laughs> yeah, I do,
0: there's some big big takeaways.
3: I do teach online.
1: Oh, do you really? I do. Oh boy, I might, I was, you know, my student loans are going to be finished off, paid off by the end of this year. I don't know. I might, I might hold off. (laughs) Maybe make a couple more student loan payments so I can come take a course with you. Um, So, but yeah, so we had such great conversation there and, and I left off with the question. Going into the technology, not so much again, not so much technology, but into the education of the cavers and this cave searchers between nineteen sixties and today, and so give us a little bit of a feel. Was was the knowledge there in the sixties as much as it is today, or or not? Or.
3: Um knowledge for uh, let's say
1: so let's say knowledge of like again we talked about the lower levels of murphy's cave i mean just overall like um obviously as time goes by you learn more and more but i mean is it possible that karis had no understanding that there could be lower cave levels back in in that time frame
3: yes absolutely um and we mentioned the, the recent research that had been done in the ukraine Um, And that's just by one cave researcher, uh, this guy named Klemchuk, there's probably more research that shows that yes, you can have multiple levels or multiple stories or tiers in relatively thin um, limestone layers.
1: And this just this is going to be completely random, but I, I got to bring it up before I forget. You mentioned your the grotto that you belong to in Colombia. Uh, did you know that they were also part of the research rescue team? They they were thanked by William Karras in his report as being part of the uh, the teams that helped out.
3: Yes, I saw that. They're a, the grotto that's been around for a long time and uh, very dedicated members. And I'm sure that they. Uh, did an awesome job when it comes to when it came to um, searching those caves.
1: Yeah, definitely. But I found that interesting how everything, you know, 53 years later intertwines and we're talking once again with somebody that was, was, you know, used to be with that group. So we talk about uh, the, about education of caves. Let's talk a little bit more about, about education of, of, of of cave searchers and, and talk about, um, give us, I guess, let's just start with, give us an overview. You belong to a cave rescue team, correct?
3: hmm
1: So give us a little bit of an overview of how today's world uh, cave rescue teams work.
3: Since 1979, the um, cave rescue has been um, under the auspices of the National Cave Rescue Commission. We sometimes call that the NCRC. Uh, They're not an actual team per se. In other words, you can't pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, I think I've got somebody lost. Can can you come help me? But they're in charge of training, cavers, fire departments, civil defense teams, uh, people like the Mark Twain emergency squad. Uh, They're responsible for training and developing the curriculum for that training in order to help people who want to be involved in these rescues. Back in 1967, you wouldn't have had that particular type of organization. You had the SSA of which Karis was um, President, uh, and um, yes, he flew in and probably brought a couple of people with him, but he didn't know the caves of the area like local people would. So to answer your question um cavers probably were not as well versed did not have the training did not have the knowledge that they do today uh with cave rescue
1: okay and and uh frankie help me out what was the cave we talked about with christian Lyons? was that the frozen Schroden- that's schroeder's, schroeder's pants. pants so and, and where was that at
0: it was in um Upstate New York, I okay. believe.
1: So, so let's take that for example, that upstate New York cave. That's, that's, you know, miles and miles different than what you're seeing in Missouri caves, right?
3: Yes. Um, in, terms of, in terms of the uh, layout of the cave, uh, especially when you compare it, the Schroeder's Pants Cave, to the Hannibal Caves. Uh, the Schroeder's Pants Cave is a branchwork cave where you had one main passage. You may have some tributary passages, just like you would with a river coming in to meet that main passage. Um, but that Schroeder's Pants Cave would be would be different. That would be a different type of uh, rescue.
1: And let's talk about how is is maze caves common to Missouri, or, or are they found in other parts of the country? I mean, or are, are they found in other parts of the country?
3: Mace caves comprise about 13 to 14% of the total cave patterns in Missouri. Um, Oh,
1: really? Oh, just in Missouri?
3: Yeah, just in Missouri. That's a little bit lower than the worldwide average of 17%. And some researchers from the University of Missouri, um, Dom and Wicks, reported that in the Hannibal area, those caves... Um, what I want to say, those caves represent about 81% of the maze caves that we find in Missouri. Oh, wow. Um, They're they're unusual because the entire cave is a maze pattern. Other cave maps that you look at from other places in Missouri will have um, mostly this branch work or tree-like pattern, and then maybe a small area will look Maze like, so Hannibal is really unique in that it has these maze caves. The entire cave is maze, and they're so large.
1: Wow, that's interesting. I, I'd never, you know, I you kind of heard it with my question. I thought maze caves was like a common occurrence across Missouri, but not not at all. That's that's interesting. Um, so we, so, yeah, yeah,
3: so even if you brought those people in from St. Louis, even if you brought those people in from Columbia, from Shadow Grotto they may or may not have had much experience in a maze cave.
0: So today when when somebody gets lost in a cave, they heavily rely on the expertise of each cave rescue team, right? Because they, I mean, back then it was just like, anybody that's ever been in a cave, come help us. Today it's more like, well, it's a maze cave. Also, when you look at, you know, the subterranean caves, right, that go underwater or they fill with water. I think that happened in Thailand, and we see this in Peru. We see this all over the world where those are the latest cave rescuing stories where most people survived and lived, if not all. Mm -hmm. Uh, Today, one of the things about cave rescue, now that we're on this topic, that I still find startling and why the podcast still has that weird divide between Lost in a cave and true crime is the fact that the lost boys, there's no remnants of them anywhere. And as cave rescue teams today, are you looking at other stuff forensically, like DNA or any kind of stuff to trace a path um, of where those? particular souls might have gone to versus back then and just jumping in and listening to the, listening to the words of of children versus breed love, which still is that weird combination, right? Like, I guess you would want to analyze all the facts first of where they were last seen and start your search there, right?
3: Right. And the cave rescue operation, even today is mostly focused on um, getting in there um, using the training that you've had, to try to locate um, the individuals. And yes, you are looking for clues as you go along, um, things that may have been dropped, um, even scuff marks in the uh, sediment of the cave. Uh, I don't believe most rescues have gone as far as to try to look at um, DNA or anything like that. Um, These groups, these regional groups, are mostly involved with getting in there as fast as they can, using their skills and their training to try to find the individual.
1: And this is a unique situation in 1967 because, uh, you know, I would assume most cave rescues, you know, Schrodinger's pants is one of them, is that they knew what cave they were in. There's this cave where, I mean, I'm sure you probably, I mean, have you ever heard of another situation where somebody's gotten lost and there's, there's four different caves in a mile section that they could possibly be lost in?
3: Every once in a while, you hear that reported. Um, one of the, the big um, uh, no-no's is to go into a cave and not tell anyone where you're going. Uh, most people that uh, do caving and know how to do it properly, uh, know that you always give the name of the cave. You tell uh, someone what time you're going in. You tell someone what, uh, what time you're expecting to come out. Um, then you have people who go into caves who are not um, experienced cavers. And those are the ones that sometimes we hear of that, um, oh, their brother or sister said that they talked about going to a cave over on the side of um red heart mountain and there are several caves on the side of red heart Mountain. so the rescue teams then do have to split up and search each of those caves so occasionally you do hear of that
1: okay so uh, let's let's apply it to 1967 this situation does um you know you're you're coming in with a group in today's world okay And and this is the scenario where you have the cutout, you have Murphy's Cave. How does that normally play out for a rescue group coming in when they have a a situation where there's there's multiple locations possible?
3: Um, Rescuers or potential rescuers would check in at the command center, uh, much like they did in Hannibal. Um, The difference between the check-in, I believe between then and today, back in 67, it seemed that people were trickling in over the first couple of days. With a more organized modern-day cave rescue, you would have people come in and arriving very um, close to one another. Um, they would uh, arrive at that command center, they would sign in, uh, they would give the uh, person signing in it, them in some of their special uh, skill sets, And then they would be assigned to uh, various jobs where uh, an individual person would be assigned to a specific job that they would keep throughout that that rescue. Hmm.
1: No, that is not the case. I mean, I've seen reports of... Uh, individuals that one day they are helping with communications and the next day they are in, they're in a a cave that's, you know, a quarter mile South of Murphy's cave. Um, So that's interesting. I mean, that's obviously going to be for the better to have people specialize in certain areas. Uh, So um, Frankie, do you have something that you wanted to add to that?
0: I mean, today too. I mean, I I would, I would remind everyone uh, anytime you're doing any kind of research or documentation, um, you know, Julie holds a master's degree, I hold master's degrees, and the things that we always look for, too, are if you're doing a certain topic like this one and you're you're going back in time, you have to keep the times relative to the situation, and and we're seeing this in America right now. We're not doing that. We, we don't know the mindset necessarily of a caver mm-hmm. in 1967 as much as we would like to, um, And then put that against fifteen hundreds, people in the fifteen hundreds. You you really don't understand the the circum the atmosphere that they're living in, right? You're a product of your environment. And the environment right now in nineteen sixty seven was, you know, get as many people at as many hands as we possibly need. Now this has worked in the past. It doesn't work real well. In, in cave searches it, through the history. It, 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 we have evolved over time into the, the same streamlined thinking. So I think that when, you, when you're when you looking at and trying to understand and guesstimate, yeah, because we're going right into like the time needed here, right? That's that next segment on where we are. The time needed, it, it's always easy to look back and say, well, if they would have done it, if they want to do the search for six months, maybe they would have found something better and they stopped construction and they halted life. And, and all these different things shut down and it's, it's kind of weird and, and ironic that this podcast is talking about that. But look look at the current environment we're living in right now when we shut things down. So you're given a time, a space of time, where, you know, well, we'll find your kids in 30 days. And if we don't, we're moving on. Because essentially that is the message that was sent to anyone. It was the biggest story in in the news from all over. We found, uh, we found newspaper clippings from California and New York City everywhere was talking about the lost boys of hannibal and people were coming from all over to help i mean they counted over 200 cavers 150 national guard and the fact that they come up empty shows you that this is 1967 this is this is this is a different way of thinking it was a different strategy and basically what they tried to do is they tried to kill it with population when if you had seven experienced maize cavers today they probably would have had better results. And that, that just shows that, that lineage of time. And, and speaking of the time needed, you know, can we quantify how much time would have been needed, Julie, from, from, from all of this? I know I said a lot there, so. Um.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that is an, an excellent question and an, and an excellent thought. I think with the amount of time that they spent in 1967 and the ability that they had to search those passageways uh, with uh, even with people of small stature. I think they did an amazing job. And, and as you said, still came up empty handed. Um, I'm not sure that that timeline uh, would be much different today. Uh, you're still faced with the fact that the boys could have gone into an area that was too small for adults to search they could have been um, trapped in a segment of cave from a cave collapse. They could have tried to dig through silt with that shovel that they supposedly took with them, and they could have been buried there. There, there are so many places that they could be, and I'm not sure that a cave rescue today would turn up. And boy, this is sticking my neck out to get chopped off.
0: Would um, would yield different results. Yeah,
3: would yield different results.
1: Well, and I want to add, uh, kind of ask in the next part of that is that do you think that there, it is there? You kind of answered already, actually. And I think about it, but is there anything that could have been done today that wasn't done back then that may have helped, or I mean. I mean, you're searching a cave. That's that's really, yeah. I mean, I, I'm trying, I guess I'm trying to throw technology or something out there. Is there, it has has things changed in that front that may have given you an upper hand today that maybe you didn't have in 1967?
3: You know, maybe the ground penetrating uh, radar, but there's so many places to look. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the key. You almost have to have an idea of where to look and uh, the complexity of these caves leaves that just wide open. Um, Some of the things that I think of, uh, one is your incident commander in today's cave rescue. That person um, receives reports from all of the different team leaders and also does not have to deal with the media. And I think that's a very, very positive, important change that was made uh, because the media can eat up a lot of your time, a lot of your attention that could be focused on thinking of different um, ways to go about searching for a lost party.
0: Right. And then semantics play a role there too, right? What you tell somebody in the media doesn't necessarily get reported so that questions re basically it regurgitates itself back to the people that are trying to do this rescue and they have to do these press conferences and i, I think that that what came out of the Karis report it's clear um from the from the research that he was a media hound that he he liked doing those those conferences and, and being in front of this in the spotlight um, when the the thing that Chris, to to your question, I think it's still a valid question. Um, I don't know that we'll ever be able to answer it because it's it's kind of it's kind of weird, you know. Even even the 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 notion of can can a team from today outdo the team of tomorrow? And in some cases, probably yes. In other cases, probably no. Because there's a keen sense of courage that goes along. With a lot of this, like when you read when you re-listen to Schroeder's Pants Cave and what Christian Lion did, which is one of the most heroic things I've ever in my life. I couldn't imagine that that pistol trigger thing that he went down and had to contort his entire body to get to one section of that cave. I mean, what they were willing to do for people they had never met that that's heroic. That's that's a hero. That's another interesting term. That we use today, but the hero is willing to sacrifice itself for someone else. And you see this in 200 people who were willing to do that for kids. And unfortunately, when I look at this case, I think it's not how they searched, it's where they searched that would have been different. I think that the the, the means would have been different. That if somebody said, well, where are you getting this information from? Well, couple kids said they went in the cave in four thirty. Yeah, but they were last seen at five fifteen on top of Lovers League. Why am I why am I looking here? That is still for me the most baffling question because one of two things occur. A, you don't have the right timeline. Or B, somebody's not being taken seriously. Billy was definitely not taken seriously. Right? Billy and Joey are talking about a new cave they found. And I think that that still breeds a lot of water here. Like why didn't somebody dig into that? Why don't you know? And now we can't revisit it, right? So we've lost that that edge a little bit. So I, I think that maybe they would have had the same results, but I definitely think they would have shut everything down.
1: I do find it real. I'm going to add on to that. I do find it weird. We talked about this the last episode. Was that it's? Why would you not? And I think if you want to compare yesterday to today. I would hope that. A rescue team goes into a place and takes every every little clue seriously. We go back to Mrs. Powell and kind of she kind of just got pushed off uh, of her of her talk as you just mentioned with Billy and Billy mentioning, hey, we're gonna check out this new cave and points at it and then she gets brushed off and they don't investigate it. I would hope and and, and, and fill me in here, Julie, but I would hope that most people would take that seriously in today's world.
3: In a modern day cave rescue situation, you would have a team that's assigned to talk to people who have eyewitness testimony. Uh, they They take that information seriously, they gather it all together so that it isn't lost in the big um, scheme of things. Sometimes I think some of these things that um, happened in nineteen sixty seven, Um, maybe even the conversation with Mary Jo Powell that you mentioned that Billy had may have just been lost in, in all of the shuffle
1: yeah they were getting hundreds and hundreds of phone calls they had a tip line and and they i mean i can't remember i think they said they searched 255 caves in, in the immediate uh, area uh, during that time frame so i mean there was a lot of information flowing but that kind of goes back and i i i don't i don't want to william carris did the best he could and i i i fully believe that he he was his goal was to find those kids sure but i have I, and i feel bad about saying this but i i did he? I feel like he might have bit off more than he could chew. And, and I, and again, I don't know if it's you. You mentioned about you have a, a group that goes and just does the investigating. You have a group that's you know doing this and this, and they're, that's their job. It seemed like Karis was filling a lot of shoes, and I, maybe that was just the way it was in 1967. But I think if you want to take something that hindered maybe the whole search is is that fact that he was that he was had his 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 toes in too many things that he couldn't could control all of them i think what do you think i mean i hate to put you on spot by that but it kind of feels that way
3: i thought of that too several days ago when i was thinking of karis it having 200 people that you're trying to direct that would be like herding cats oh yeah and and to try to be the one person that takes in all the information uh, firsthand, you know, dealing with the media, you're right. He did the very best job that he possibly could have done if he had been the incident commander today in today's National Cave Rescue uh, regional groups. Um, I think his job would have been clearer for him. I think he would have had the support. Not that he didn't with the people then, but I think um, the different teams would have just been a, a, a better division of labor. Mm-hmm. I can conquer, then go see the incident commander with the information that it you feel is most relevant to the to the search.
1: And, and I guess, and I, I was trying to think of a good example, and I can't really come up with one, but failures make future successes and i and i guess you know you can't he didn't know that 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 you know in 1967 you don't know that the best scenario for your best possible outcome is to have you have your investigators you have your communications you have your your searchers you have you know these core you you set up this you know and media you set up these core things i guess you know good news is is that today we know from those mistakes back then that now we can Move forward and hopefully be more successful. But yeah, I I find just it's that I find that really interesting. Frankie, do you have something?
0: Actually, the more people you have, uh, the 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 less effective you are. Uh, This is proven in special ops, right? Special ops and alpha teams deal in seven to eight people. Everyone is specialized in a skill, from sniper to navigation. They do specific projects. Even though you have a SEAL team of sixty men. Only eight or seven are sent out. When you have specialized individuals doing things, it's very different than having 200 people. You can, I mean, people forget the Revolutionary War was not won because we had bodies in the field. We had militia. We had small amounts of people. So I think a smaller amount of people might have come up with a better solution as to even what happened. Because here's the thing, here's the takeaway from Hannibal. Nobody knows what happened. Like, that was the other loss, right? The other loss in the column was we didn't find them, and we don't know what happened because we have no evidence of them ever being in the caves that we searched. So that is what, once again, it's the allure of the podcast. Once again, it's the mystery behind—I mean, I've been watching old episodes of Unsolved Mysteries just to see if they covered this. And I'm in season one, and I love Robert Stack, but that's another <laughs> that's another podcast. Um, but the new the new unsolved mystery is amazing. And I, it is an unsolved mystery, and it, i i i still I still believe that with the support that we've gotten, and and I still believe with the passion that clearly we all have, that we might be able to use modern technology to solve the riddle, because that's what it really was. You asked a guy to jump in Air Force two to drop into Hannibal to solve one of the biggest puzzles in the world. Nobody knows what was in those kids' mindsets. Nobody knows where they were going, per se. But I also look at 1967 as a as a as a place and a station for women when they talked was very different than when they talk today. Mm-hmm. And this is something that has to be brought up because it, it's the equality was not there. When a teacher tells when a woman teacher tells somebody to something they might brush it off and just be like, oh, she's being dramatic or she's being hysterical. Like, mm-hmm. that that was a real plausible thing. Today, we look at women and <laughs> we have one on our show, you know, because we're learning from her back then it wasn't like that it just wasn't the 1960s wasn't like mrs that. powell i that as soon as you said that was
1: miss you know mrs powell i think that was the one of the i i personally when i hear that story i'm thinking oh they thought she was a woman and whatever we're not going to listen to that. she's story. hysterical
0: yep yeah exactly mm-hmm. and and unfortunately i don't want to place blame on anyone. But once again, you 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 keep it relative to the times. That's just the way people thought back then. I can't change the way they thought back then. But what we can do today is look at Mrs. Powell today and we say, "Wow, that might have been the most crucial piece of the of the puzzle than anything else, than any I would even better than Breedlove's who just reports seeing them. We don't know the time. But she knows for a fact that they invited—didn't they invite one of mm-hmm. her kids, too? Yeah. So—and she's like, absolutely not. You know, and, 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 and to—we and to, don't know too much about the Dallas, but we know for a fact the Hogues were totally against them exploring anything in that road cut. So, once again, we kind of go full circle with the, the the time of 1967, right, which the music is undoubtedly unbeatable. The music in the 60s, unbeatable. Um, however, other things have changed. They've evolved into something else. And so, you know, we move now to somebody that actually agreed with that, somebody that actually had more evidence that needed more time, and that was Jerry Vineyard. That was somebody that went down there and did some legwork. And we talked a little bit about him in part one, but there's a lot more to Jerry Vineyard than than I than, than we should than we've talked about, but I think now is kind of a good time to talk about well, them. Unless you have more questions, no, no. And
1: then. I'm going to start with this. Um, and you sent uh, a, a little little section uh, that he wrote uh, from 1998. Is this? Do you remember, uh, Julie? What this was from? Was this just some sort of? Uh, go ahead.
3: It's from the uh, Mo Caves Listserve. At that time, there were <clears throat> people who uh, would sign up for this listserv and they, you know, they could email each other back and forth with information. Don't ask me why I saved this. Well, I, I think it's obvious why I saved the message because I'm so passionate about this. Um, but um, Jerry wrote to ca- mostly to cavers on this Missouri caves listserv uh, about some of his feelings Um, about his role in the rescue, some of his feelings about the uh, road-cut caves, uh, about his thought that that was probably the place where they were lost.
1: So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read this. Um, And unfortunately, I believe Jerry passed away in 2017, I think, is when I saw that he passed away. So we just lost him a few years ago. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and read this real quick here, Frankie. He said, uh, I'm particularly proud of... Uh, oh excuse me let me start over my own participation in the
0: start from the top on that
1: my own participation in the rescue is nothing i'm particularly proud of i helped search known caves including murphy's caves search area limestone caves and spent considerable time crawling around in some of the caves that were still open in the road cut probably included the one that trapped the boys But I did not rise to the occasion and accomplish anything significant during the time I spent there. For example, I could have organized a mapping crew and mapped the accessible caves, but I didn't. We did begin a mapping effort, but never completed it. The construction crew brought in a big shovel excavator and dug up all the shot rock, and the cave passages were all destroyed. So that is from Jerry Vineyard in 1998.
0: And it's telling, right? It's telling that in nineteen ninety eight he is reminiscing thirty years, thirty one years to today. This is this is the part of this is the part where I get like emotional because I think when you see passion, that's passion. Right? That thirty years have gone by and he is recalling in his memoirs and these in these letters that there, there's more that I could have done right there's more that we could have done that there's there's something there and I think it's telling. I think it's telling that somebody that will jump in there and try to do something like that. And Ted
1: did the same thing in his, in his letters, yeah. um, in which we went over in a, um, in a bonus episode last season, but yeah, he was the same way. I mean, he wrote those things 20, 30 years after the fact, and was still saying his biggest regret was not finding the boys in Hannibal in 1967. So, uh, but let's dig into this a little bit more here, Julie. Um, he he mentioned it, and that's something we've we've kind of tried digging into, um, and I do want to get into this because me and you've had conversations about this already. Is that he did try to map some of the uh, of the cutout area, um, and and you told me this is that we have a sometimes it's kind of difficult to get those 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 maps. We've tried and I've had I've kind of commissioned you to see if you could try, um, but uh, what's the deal? Are they are they they hold them in a lock or what's why don't we see those
3: uh cave maps are kept definitely under lock and key um takes a lot of work to produce a cave map plus i think the fear is that if a person has a map and they have a general location as to where that cave is they might attempt to go to that cave and, and enter that cave. Part, so part of it is the Missouri Speleological Societies uh, focus on safety where they, they want to keep people safe um, from the idea that, oh, I've got this map. Maybe I can just go in this cave and, and follow this map. It's not as simple as, um, as that. Um, but yes, cave uh, locations and cave maps are kept relatively um, sequestered from uh, people being able to get them uh, without a substantial
1: well. And there's some, equal, 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 I can never say that, ecological uh, significance to it as well, <laughs> correct?
3: Yes. Um, there are some um, critters that live in caves. I'm thinking of a little critter that lives in only two documented caves in the world in southwestern Illinois. It's called Gammarus acarondites and if you look at a picture of it, it looks like a little shrimp It lives in these cave streams and so they don't want people finding these caves and going in the caves because you walk in the cave stream, you're going to crush these little dudes. and you're going to possibly cause them to uh, diminish in numbers.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, especially if there's only there's, two caves that have them. <laughs>
3: so far, yeah. only two caves in the world where they've been found.
0: Wow. Uh, you know, cave shrimp sounds delicious. <laughs>
3: <laughs> a little bit of coating and a little bit of lemon sauce, maybe.
0: I know you're done. A little little uh, little cave shrimp uh, special. Maybe uh, <laughs> maybe, you know what? Maybe it will become so popular that um, the brewery, Mark Twain Brewery, yeah. will make a dish for us. The Lost Boys Cave, <laughs> cave Shrimp.
1: <laughs> well, I know I, I don't know if you're familiar with this. I've, I think I brought it up in a couple episodes. Uh, Burton Cave, just outside of Quincy. Are you familiar with that cave? That cave has been blocked off for many years now because I believe there's a special type of bat in there as well um, that they want to keep protected.
3: Yes, I was one of the crew that actually helped gate that cave. Really?
1: So, so is Um, this a time where I tell you that I grew up on the top of the hill right above that cave?
2: Oh, you did. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, I'm very familiar with that cave. I'm very familiar with that cave. So,
2: yeah, protect
1: our bat. Bats are so Uh, important. Remind me when we get done with this episode. I got some questions to ask you. Anyway,
3: (laughs) yes, Burton Burton Cave has um, a colony of Indiana bats, and they are endangered and in some cases in not necessarily in Burton but in other caves around the country uh, people will go into the caves and they don't understand the super importance of these bats and they will do terrible things they will kill them Uh, entire colonies of thousands of bats can be killed very quickly and um so to protect the bats and to allow them to fly easily in and out of the cave, they put up special bat gates.
1: Yeah, and you're not, nobody's getting past those gates. <laughs> I can tell you that.
3: <laughs> there have been people that tried to dig under them, and that's not possible because of the way that it's designed. Yeah, I,
1: I've, I mean, I don't, I'm Thank sure God. you can get into Fort Knox with a, it's easier than you can get <laughs> into that cave. But anyway... Well, there's no, yeah, there, no, no, you're good. Uh, so anyway, uh, so yeah, so you know, kind of the Jerry with Jerry's information, though, um, it's it's very interesting. At listserv, I mean, again, that's just a little snippet of of something that that we could pull from. I mean, was there anything else that that hit you with with Jerry and in his background? You wanted to cover?
3: I, I was interested in the fact that early in that post on the listserv that he mentions that. He wished that he had formally published some of his thoughts, some of his geological um, discoveries about these roadcut caves, um, but that they had sat, um, as as many of us can attest to, uh, when we do work. Sometimes we set those things aside, and they they do not get formally mm-hmm. published. Um, that makes me wonder if Tex Yokum's maps were the same and it's possible that neither of those sets of maps are in the Missouri Speleological Survey archives. Right,
1: it, and on that note, um, after talking with you about it, we have our research group that's trying to track down family members, because again, both Tex and Jerry have passed away, um, but we're trying to, Track down some living family members to see if maybe, and even you brought it up, of of is there a notebook that you know? Again, you never had anything formally published, but you may have informally written stuff down that you were planning on publishing someday. So we're hoping to get that out. And if again, I'll reach out to our community if there's anybody out there that knows any of the family members of uh, Jerry Vineyard or of Texyokum. Uh, let us know because we're trying to get in touch with those just to see if maybe we can find something to put a little extra piece into the puzzle um, uh, of this case. Especially, as you can tell, and Frankie just mentioned, 31 years down the road and Jerry's still talking about it on a listserv uh, website. So they were still thinking about it. So there, there's obviously a lot that could possibly be out there that we're not seeing.
0: Well, it's you know it's it's really strange. I, I was actually in Florida. I was on the Treasure Coast. Um, last week Uh, and so I was talking to um, we were at a bar uh, actually a really cool famous restaurant called Conky Joe's and I met a couple there and they knew the podcast they actually listened to it so it was really really cool to kind of talk to them for a little bit and they're actually treasure hunters and they made this interesting uh, connection that it's never about the gold it's about the find it's never ever about the gold and that's why these stories like this are intriguing. It's, it's about the find and it's something that he even said it, it haunts you. It haunts you the rest of your life. Even if you just give it up, if you just stop, stop doing it. Um, it, it haunts you for the rest of your life because there's always going to be a part of your brain that says, if I only did this, if I only did that, it's almost like that, you know, survivor's guilt, if you will, of, of not having to have the, the right tools to do everything you could have possibly done. You know, when Vineyard reflected in 98, you can see that times have changed, that his his ability when he was underneath the ground to the, even in the in the late '90s, thirty years later, there was so much more technology that, that would have been available to him, and that's where that that stems from. That's where that kind of churns up, and so it was really cool to see like people listening to our podcast in Florida. But the reason why they listen to it, it's because it's the same thing as this this treasure hunt. The only thing that's different that the the wife said that you're hunting souls, you're looking for souls, you're not looking for God, and that's that's even more precious A than A cave anything. by the so, river
1: yeah exactly
0: <laughs> inside joke <laughs> oh god i wish I wish we had those I wish we had their yeah. their money <laughs>
1: uh anyway um yeah we we're big fans of uh, uh what's that called um oh what's that called
0: the the show the curse yes i'm only i only watch it now just to see him fail because like it's just like there's nothing there man like and and the locals actually have you seen that side pit on on uh-huh. on YouTube you guys should check it out. It's really funny. It's a bunch of locals saying, dude, i lived here my whole life. I've known everybody in my family It's dug there. There's nothing If we're going to take <laughs> anything
1: out of the, the Curse of Oak Island is that at some point in time, GDR, this, yeah. this this podcast is going to have that voiceover guy do something for us. We have learned yes. that because we really like the voiceover yes. guy. Yes.
0: <laughs> it's the only reason why I, I'm saving money right now, just to have him – a boy from a family like he's just, good.
1: he's what? he's so good at the double questions. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. Well, the, the pointless yeah. questions actually.
1: <laughs> anyway, uh, and now now we've broken everybody's spirits because now they're gonna listen to that and they're gonna hear every time that announcer talks goes the double question. <laughs> it, it happens every time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. so so we got to move on to one other thing. Um, a smell in a cave. Uh, so yeah, yeah. that's what we're gonna
0: move on to
1: next. Is is
0: yeah, cave, So caves normally have that cave smell, right? It's the, the cold air, the muskiness. the I mean, you know it the minute you go into it. I can smell it here because I did a film on the Limp documentary where I actually had, and I'm going to say this, I actually had access to the caves underneath the ground brewery and I was able to go. And that's when I said I would <laughs> never, ever go again because I used to be very enthusiastic about it. But then when I went down there, the highway construction here, uh, basically Highway 50
3: uh-huh.
0: basically broke, broke down just a lot like what happened in Hannibal where there was no air getting back in the filtrate so black mold started to grow and it was bad it was disgusting but you could feel the temperature drop immediately um, and there's actually a place on Cherokee Street if you go near the brewery if you're in St. Louis one of the vents you'll feel the cold air coming from the cave and that's, uh-huh. that's actually where you go so that's how you get down there. It's pretty cool, but anyway, but so that that's what I remember from it. It's just it's this really cold, musky rock, earth smell. So smelling something different would be different.
3: Yeah, in geology we call that an argillaceous smell. That's the formal term mm-hmm. for that musty, earthy sort of odor that is is common in caves.
1: But we had a different smell in 1967. That we want to talk about. And I believe if we can kinda digging into it, it was about two weeks or ten days of two weeks. I, I I had some different different people say different time frames of when exactly it was and hopefully someday we'll figure out exactly what date it was um but as they were searching the murphy's cave area uh, an odd odor came from the vicinity and they brought in the coroner and they brought in a funeral director i think and they both came in and they said that they both felt that it was a sewer smell uh, or a dead animal uh, that it, it wasn't the boys but Let's talk about that a little more in depth. And and one of the things we talked about was air pressure with cave systems. And and explain that a little bit to me, for me.
3: Caves actually breathe. Um, They pull air in when the air inside the cave is at a lower pressure than the air outside. And vice versa, when you have low pressure move into the area... In the atmosphere outside the cave the cave air is still under a higher pressure and it blows outward so cave air moves i think many people even when they take a tour in a cave um, don't uh, maybe don't realize this they don't pay attention to the breeze that's blowing against their face and so caves exchange air with the outside uh quite often that means that air is moving through the passages within the cave, and any passages that are connected will experience this this airflow. In fact, down at Mammoth Cave, they actually have um, a weather station set up in the uh, big main passage. As you come in, they are tracking the flow of air in and out of the cave. Uh, for some ecological studies and, and various other things. So the fact that these caves breathe and the air moves through the cave um, intrigues me, especially with our Lost boy story, because in the Stewart book, um, he mentions that a caver that was inside the cave searching also smelled that odor. Hmm. I believe the the majority of the other people that gave eyewitness accounts were outside the cave. Um, This caver was inside the cave. I'm sure there probably aren't any notes that were taken um, as to where that caver was within the system. sure would be interesting to to know. Um, But yes, cave air does move.
1: Yeah, so you know another point that you brought, and, and and we've talked about this, and it's been talked on the discussion groups a lot, is and they kind of go into the smell too. So say let's just let's just say that they were lost in the in the in the cutout area, and uh, you know, again we last uh, I think it was about. Two episodes ago, we talked about how how difficult. Why why is it that they were the boys were seen by forty different people between three thirty and five fifteen? But then, if they were going back to Murphy's Cave, nobody saw them after five fifteen. I mean, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and nobody would have spot them going all the way back down the road to back to Murphy's Cave. But it does bring up the ideas. Okay, if they're still trapped in the uh, cutout area and they passed away in the cutout area. How could it be possible for that smell to transition to Murphy's cave?
3: And it has been discussed uh, in the group. People have talked about the fact that over time, the valleys have cut down. They've been cut down by water, by streams, by rivers in that immediate vicinity. And I think sometimes people don't realize that as long as the rock layer that the caves are found in extends below the valley that you can actually have passageways that pass beneath a valley. They may not be air filled. They may be partially water filled. They may be completely water filled when the Mississippi River uh, level rises and floods. But it is possible that there might be some passage that passes under the valley. So if the boys had met their demise in the road cut caves, it is possible that Murphy's cave exchanges air with the system in the, the road cut. And that circulating air may have contained some of those gases, the the putrazine and the cadaverzine that a body will produce after it has expired. Um, it's possible that that would pass through uh exchange between those two caves now whether it was a strong enough concentration that the human nose could pick that up and actually smell it that's another
1: question
0: yeah you would but when you get back to the sinkhole though right where it's not that far off too i mean there's that demise could have been met there but there was stuff coming from the ground there was stuff coming through the passage exchange i mean it's it's it's, it's probable it's possible that this is that we're seeing something or, or in this case we're smelling something that so for me the sewage line is very strange like how they pond it off I and mean, that's always been like well it's just sewage huh raw sewage is very different in fact cadaver dogs are trained they are the first thing they're trained on is the difference between raw sewage and cadavers it's the first thing they're trained on and, well, one of the first things they're trained on to pick up the scent. They'll let you know right away if it's raw sewage. Um, and they'll let you know right away if it's not. So what are, you, what are your feelings on the pa- it, For me, it was passed off. Once again, it was one of these like dismissed comments that don't worry about it. It's, it's just sewage. Now, I'm from Florida. Okay, we have landfills everywhere. I've lived in houses where it was on a sewer system. I've lived in houses where we had our own well where we had to put potassium and salt in the water and purify it. Whenever you had a sewage leak or spill, it always came from those same spots, and you always knew that smell. For it to never occur again or before is a bigger question. Oh, when we when we were digging. Wh- where exactly were you digging by Murphy's Cave? Well, you were digging by the yeah, road so cut, right?
1: You're saying if, if they, if they would have hit a line when they were doing construction that they would have replaced it. And therefore, it should have been put in some report saying we hit a
0: sewer line, not that we think it's a sewer 100%. line. A hundred percent. They would have had yes. that documented. They have to flag it. Even in 1967, you're flagging that stuff because they don't yeah. want to pay yeah. for it. Right. Why didn't you tell yeah. me there was a line it, yeah, here?
1: It's a great point. So, <laughs> so, yeah, how is it all of a sudden just randomly it happens that, oh, we smell the sewer smell. That's a great point, Frankie. And yeah. would they
3: have... Uh, Laid that sewer line so close to the front of that bluff that contains Murphy's Cave on the east side. Would they have laid that so close to the bluff that the bulldozer would have dug into it as they were trying to remove uh, additional rock?
1: So, so let's think about this for a second. Uh, And you know, hopefully, you remember this. If not, I've seen some older maps. There, you know, today there's houses above on top of the hill of Murphys Cave. They're a little bit farther back. They're not right on top, but they're yeah. a little bit farther back. You can make the argument that there could be some sort of sewer lines that are coming down the hill today. However, you got to put it into consideration of of how sewer lines work. They are gravity fed. So, you have for sewer lines to be uh, useful. They they got to be below where the entry point's at. So let's say your toilets, your toilets up higher, and you're you got to have that slow go down. Where they're going into the Murphy's cave at, I don't see how that they're that how gravity would work to where that those those lines would even be in the phys- vicinity of where they would want to be cutting at. You know.
3: Unless they were dumping it into Bear Creek. <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, That's just a joke. Is our, is our, is our, is our yeah. next rabbit hole a, a DNR investigation? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know,
3: I thought of um, uh, the buildings that were in that area at that time. And I do remember the stone house that sat between the hillside mm-hmm. and the creek. I believe someone said it was used as a facility, possibly for people who were recovering from um, mental issues.
0: It actually, we actually, it's funny, in front of me, she sent me a letter. And I just got it because I've been out of town and, and chasing things back and forth. But she sent me pictures of the house in 1967. It's awesome. So we're going to put those up. Did with she this give any background reasons. on what it was? Oh, yeah. She gave me a full letter, about, about six pages long about her living there, her parents living there. They owned the gas station in town. They knew all about the stories. They, they actually were—see, back then, people didn't like— to, see, this is, puts it in perspective, once again, what 1967 was like. People didn't bank. They didn't trust banks. They didn't like banks. They would go to this, her, her dad's gas station, which later became a mechanic shop because gas was no longer full service. It was self-serve, so they were losing money there and so her family basically would would say right there, and it was right in the corner. They had moved a couple different spots um, throughout the time, but he owned this place, and everybody would come there and cast their check, so he knew everybody in town. He knew exactly when the boys went missing. Everybody would gossip in the shop, so she goes on to tell, like, you know, the story was actually they rented one one side. They lived in the other side, and it was a beautiful house. It was beautiful. Now, after that, it doesn't really matter anymore for for our for our evidence, but we know for a fact now that that house was a residence. Uh, people did live there, and she's actually eyewitness testimony with pictures of the car and her mom and her as a baby all sitting out front there. So it's 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 really cool that 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 basically just no filled, more. Yeah, we filled that, that one in with dirt. It's filled, <laughs> done. Like no, there's there's no mental institution okay, there okay. where. Where uh, you know Ray Hatcher was hanging out for for a day or something like that. Now yeah, uh, so.
1: uh, let's actually, since we're in that neck of the woods talking about that area, we'll get back to the smell in a second. But one thing just popped in my head is somebody on the discussion group mentioned that there's entrances that the main entrance was to Murphy's Cave at that time was actually like along the hill of where that ro- where that house is at. That's not accurate, right? The the from your do you know for sure was it was it on seventy nine.
3: I thought so.
1: I did, too.
3: Um, The entrance was, I believe, behind the house and still is, obviously. Uh, It's bricked up. They dug an additional entrance closer to the home that we just finished talking about. It was more of a pit entrance. Uh, to gain access to some additional areas of the cave. So,
1: hold on, you said pit. So were they going down to get into there?
3: They were at at that juncture. Um, okay. Yeah. And I don't know the particulars about how many feet that might have been above the natural cave entrance. It couldn't have been too much higher.
1: Okay. Well, it'd be nice to have that cave map.
2: <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. So, okay. So let's go back to the smell. One of the things that I, I was so excited in, in our conversations and us talking was that you, you know, with your professional background, you you know, some other people and, and tell us about something that we wanted to get into because obviously the, uh, temperatures in a cave, usually what? 53, 57 degrees. in, in most situations, especially in the Hannibal area, um, so what, what you were trying to work on something extra. I know you weren't able to successfully get through to it, but explain to us how, what, what you were working on.
3: I contacted a colleague of mine, Dr. John Moore at Parkland College. He's someone who has frequently called in on cold cases here in the Champaign-Urbana area. And I asked him if he had any kind of charts showing how quickly a body begins to decompose Um, in different settings, not just at the surface, but in the subsurface. And he said, unfortunately, he didn't. But he recommended that I call the Forensic Archaeology Center at the University of Tennessee. So I did that. I called their number. And uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, they're closed (laughs) down like the rest of us. And so I left a message. They have a what's called a body farm. And people who donate their body to science or who want to donate their body to science frequently will donate their body to this forensic archeology span center. The center takes the bodies and places them in different environments, different temperature environments, different humidity environments, different types of soil And so I was hoping that we could get some information. I was hoping since Tennessee is the number one cave state, that this center would have some information on um, caves, on bodies uh, decomposing in caves. How long does it take for the gases to be uh, produced? Does it take longer in the colder cave? Uh, is it a shorter amount of time? Uh, how soon would you expect to start smelling this? These are kind of some of the questions that I thought about
1: yeah, asking. And I them. think I honestly, if you want to fill in another rabbit hole, going back to nineteen sixty-seven, is that if we can get uh, a date that kind of uh, you know contradicts that time frame of when this smell was happening. So say that, you know, with a 53 or 57 degree uh, temperature that it takes, um, you know, 30 days for a body to start to have that, those smells instead of 10 or 12 days that what they were saying, that may put a, put a fork in, in, in this whole smell thing. So I'm, I'm going to be super excited to see if we get any, any, any information back from them on that.
3: Mm-hmm uh, very interesting. You know, I have a, a caving friend who was um, quoted in the Charles Stewart book. Um, his name is Dave Mahan, and he's from Payson, Illinois. He firmly believes that the boys were in Murphy's, that they met their demise in Murphy's, possibly in one of those little pockets that could be part of a stair step pattern of multiple levels. And that when they dug into this east side of um, the bluff, that that's possibly what the
1: smell was mm-hmm. from. Yeah, um, there's just a lot, lot of different possibilities.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you if you change the timeline by one hour, they're in Murphy's cave.
1: Well, not even an hour. I mean, you could make it half an hour, and they could be back in. And 15 minutes, they could be back in Murphy's cave.
0: Well, to line up with the Bramlet boys. Hmm. Brownlett Boys re- report oh, yeah.
1: Right, 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 right. So forty five minutes. Yeah.
0: So yeah. if you're at five, yeah, you go back an hour. I mean, you're you're looking. I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, you can't eyewitness testimony. We've said this a couple times on the show, but we should always reiterate it. It's the only uh, non-admissible. But evidence. I would make the, the only. Everything else is admissible. Sorry. But, let's timeline this because yeah. you had you
1: had the bramlets but then you had the you had the workman put in his that that solemn um at 440 you had uh, a guy by the name of um oh the i can't think of his name but there was another guy that saw him at 445 <clears throat> yeah oh, uh, dexheimer. dexheimer dexheimer i mean they they had more witnesses than just the bramlets so i mean You can make the argument that, and I've said this in the past, is that eyewitness testimony is not always foolproof. But when you start adding on multiple witnesses, then that foolproof state kind of starts to dissipate a little bit, in my opinion. Is that, you know, if you have 15 people saying the same thing, chances are it's probably accurate than if you had two people saying the same thing. Um, So... Yeah, I, I but I think if you want to go to anything, I still have a problem with just the time frame of the five fifteen. To if they did go back to Murphy's cave, then nobody saw them. Um, I yeah. don't. I don't follow that.
0: Yeah, I mean, even even uh, <laughs> Julie was yeah. was in that same boat.
3: Yeah, and I also, Chris, I think I mentioned this to you. Also, was thinking about the conversation. Um, with uh, Mary Jo Powell. Uh, If you are someone who seems to be pulled towards the underground, whether you're a child or an adult, and you say you found a new cave, you're very, very, very unlikely to go into a cave that you already know, if you have the opportunity to explore your new discovery. And so that's another piece of the puzzle for me. He told Mrs. Powell that he was going to a new cave, pointed towards the uh, bypass. Um, they, I don't think they would have gone back to Murphy's unless there was something that prevented them from going about their new discovery.
0: Mm. Well, yeah. it's a good point. Oh, I was so,
1: going yeah, to say ahead, that they they were having you know with if the road construction crew was specifically working on a section that they wanted to get to that day that would have been their interruption to where they wouldn't want to do something else so yeah I, I definitely understand that
2: very
0: true so yeah and so as we oh, Frankie, as this i gotta ask episode a question. comes Don't, to yeah, a, hold hold a close a
1: second. <laughs> um okay i have one last question i do want to ask you real quick and that has to do with we've talked about hannibal uh the mark twain cave we talked about cameron cave we talked you know uh, cut out murphy's cave uh in your pro- professional opinion and I, I hate to put you on the spot on this but do you feel in your i guess personal opinion would be a better option uh do you feel that all the caves in that area are connected or are they all their own cave systems
3: I believe that there is a possibility that long ago before the local rivers and creeks started to cut down through the the sides of the hills, I believe there is a distinct possibility that these caves do have connections with one another. Um, Wind Cave and Jewel Cave out in um, South Dakota are humongous maze caves. Now, they formed in a different way than Mark Twain and Cameron and the bypass caves and Murphys, but um, geologically speaking, I do think that there's definitely a possibility.
1: Sure. I, I just wanted to get get somebody that's that's involved in the caving community to give us their thoughts on that. And Frankie, I, yeah, go and, ahead. And
3: I don't think I'm the only one that that has thought that in the geological community in the past. Jay Harlan Bretts, that we mentioned earlier uh, that wrote the book, The Caves of Missouri, um, he believed and, and many researchers believe that Cameron and Mark Twain were definitely one big system. Um, the other caves aren't that far away. Um, so it's, def- it's
1: possible.
0: In fr- yeah, Jack. Jack is back to end the show. <laughs> we got our third
1: co-host with us back.
0: <laughs> yep, here he is. Um, so, in so, I'm gonna actually end. I'm gonna end this with uh, some final Sounds thoughts. Great. How about that? So, final thought from from Chris. And then I'll do a final thought, and then we'll end the show with um, our lovely host who has joined us for the last two episodes, our co-host. And we'll probably have you on again and in the documentary. So uh, get ready for your close-up, Staville. Her eyes got a little Uh, wide when you said that, Frankie. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It happens. It's just a camera with a blinking red light. Um, (laughs) But uh, final thoughts, Chris. I mean, over Brian Haloida to the last two episodes... Um, With Julie Angel and her expertise in the cave, where are you, where are you at right now? Where are you leaning? Oh boy, now? Uh, yeah. You know,
1: I want to say that I, I really just want to come out and say my percentages are all the same. Um, but honestly, what Julie brought to us today makes me really ponder. I mean, all it takes is just one little hole that you know it, it takes years to explore a cave to know all the nooks and crannies. And sometimes you still don't find those nooks and crannies. So, you know, having 30 days to, to search these cave systems and having other factors involved, like, you know, construction crews and all that trying to be involved. I mean, there's a lot of factors involved with that so yeah i mean lost in a cave is is still a still a pretty high percentage i mean I'm, i might be leaning a little bit higher uh in after this discussion um i still hold pretty true that i don't feel that murphy's cave is a play um but i do think that i do think that the cutout may have a little more credence than it did before and that's i guess that's where i'll put it at
0: <laughs> and he'll put his tail in your face, which is awesome. <laughs> well, we'll have to get a picture of Jack for the, for the Lost Boys. I mean, people need visuals, visual references. Um, so, my, my final thoughts are I, Dr. Brian Holoida really opened my mind up to the possibilities and the rarity of finding someone in an area like Hannibal, which has had some interesting crimes. We talked about the 1970 Quincy girl that went missing at nine years old and was found and later found. And of course she was sexually assaulted and, and, and murdered. Um, aside from that, Hannibal in and of itself in the 1960s, wasn't a dangerous place per se. It was a place for childhood kids to explore and to get into, into the Mark Twain type of trouble. Um, Like I said in the other episode, you know, if you grow up on the beach, chances are you become a diver. If you grow up near caves, chances are you like being in in caves. Um, So for me, I am pretty much at like 75% that these boys are in the caves. Uh, The reason why I'm keeping the 25% open is because I don't believe in coincidence, but I do believe in the opportunistic killer. Um, Because both of those are true, and they're statistically proven. And so although we've turned the tide and we've come back home to Hannibal in in this year's cold case uh, thematic, I think that things still need to be explored. I think there's things that still lend itself to public um, scrutiny, which we love and please on the Facebook page and in our group. That's what helps us keeping it fresh and keeping the right research out there. We don't, we don't, we don't grab this resource from fiction. We bring in the experts to basically lend our hand in the areas that we don't know the concentration of studies. So with that, I will lend it off to um, Julie, who will have her final closing on what she thinks. And it, don't don't take it verbatim. This is just her opinion right now, but it's an informed one. <laughs> I'll tell you that much with her research.
3: Well, I want to thank you for opening this back up as you mentioned, to get it back into people's minds, making it fresh. And I also want to thank you for considering all the possibilities. I think um, when you do a study, a crime study, a scientific study, and you uh, look into cold cases, you have to do that. You have to open it up to considering that, yes, there may have been um, some person uh, of that person who did something to these boys. Um, I think if we're putting it in percentages between crime and the caves, I probably would stick with the 75% um, thinking that they're in the caves, 25% thinking that they may have met some, some other demise. There are just so many things that could have happened to them underground, so many places that they could have gone that the searchers were not able to access Um, they could have been buried underneath a ceiling collapse they could have been caught in another passageway sealed off from their only exit uh, again by a ceiling collapse or by silt collapse Um, i'm happy that this is being looked into and i'm hoping that If there's just one little thing that I've said, or any of your other guests have said that helped to move this forward to find these boys, it's so important for their family members that are still alive. Um, It's important to the rest of us that feel passion in our hearts about this uh, tragedy. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm. And thank you for having me as, as a guest.
0: Uh more than more than welcome. I think that you've lended so much so and, and the thank yous really go to the support. I mean without our listeners, without our audience, we, we don't have a show and we continue to spread the good word of everything, so thank you for being an, an incredible guest. These might be my my two favorite episodes right now. If you're looking, if you, if you lean toward the cave, uh, the cave people, and I think this is really happening. The poll is kind of leaning toward are you are you into the cave loss? Or are you into the Hamas the, the you know the salacious nefarious um, lost boys? So it, it's two different things right now. I don't think we could we can basically seal that right. Can't fill in that rabbit hole, as Chris likes to say so thank you so much for being a guest from all of us here at the Lost Boys of Hannibal podcast I'm Frankie I'm Chris we'll be seeing you
2: if you should go which way you go on oh, Don't want me, Billy You're free at last I won't forget you, Billy